Hey people, welcome to Accidental Gods, to the podcast where we believe that another world is still possible and that together we can make it happen. I'm Amanda Scott, your host at this place on the web, where art meets activism, politics meets philosophy, and science meets spirituality, all in the service of conscious evolution, and increasingly, in the service of finding that clear way through to a flourishing future that we would be happy and proud to leave to the generations that come after us. My guest this week is someone who's standing at the edge of that flourishing future, looking forward to the ways that we can feed and clothe and heat ourselves in a future that is not dependent on fossil fuels. Liberty Nimmo is someone who has long had an interest in medicinal herbs and wild flora and spent time working on organic, regenerative and biodynamic farms. Liberty is now part of a group calling itself the Three Turnips, based on Lower Hampton Farm in the Cotswolds, where in the last six months she has begun to develop a thriving community-supported agriculture project as part of an ongoing movement to create a circular economy on the farm. And it sounded so exciting and so inspiring to hear from someone who's literally gone from a grass field to aubergines that I really wanted to talk to her. So people of the podcast, please welcome Liberty Nimmo. Liberty Nimmo, welcome to the Accidental Gods podcast. Thank you for coming out this Friday evening. How How is life on the farm? What is most alive for you in your growing world at the moment? Oh, Amanda, well, thank you so much for having me. It's such um, a pleasure and a privilege to be here. So thank you. Well, today it's been another pretty, pretty hot day, um, but it's been a bountiful day of harvesting this morning. Um, which is always sort of the best day, really, you know, seeing all of these tiny little things that have, you know, been seedlings and that you've loved and nurtured and, you know, sung songs to or or not. And, um, you know, and, and finally sort of sending them off to, to, um, to go into delicious food. So it's been a really wonderful day. What are you actually harvesting? Just for my curiosity, because I've been harvesting beans and peas this morning. What have you got? We've had the first of our aubergines, which I'm very proud about because they look particularly shiny and delicious. We've had lots of runner beans, lots of French beans, lots of salad onions, um, some cavallonero. Uh, we've had the first of the cabbages, which is quite a, an exciting moment, and um, lots of beetroot and carrots, and also lots of herbs. So we're we're also growing lots of herbs, both sort of you know, kind of with a view for culinary things and and um, teas, and you know, also sort of with an idea for medicinal use too, which is sort of you know incorporated into cooking. Yeah, definitely. And plant dyes. We're going to get onto that later, but herbs and plants, I suppose, they're not quite herbs. Yes. So let's take a bit of a step back because you've not been doing this very long. This is a whole new project. And this is why I wanted to bring you to Accidental Gods, because about this time last year, there was a field and and now you're producing stuff and processing it and, and bringing it to market. So can you tell us a little bit about the root from there to here and what brought you, Liberty Nimmo, 
to this? Yeah, absolutely. So in, in terms of the project itself, just to, to answer the first part of that question. Um, so so yes, so six months ago, the field where we, we which we've now cordoned, cordoned off for two and a half acres of vegetables and other bits, um, which I'll come on to, was in arable production. And we received part of a, a grant funding to set up what's known as a CSA, which is a community supported agriculture. And essentially, it's, you know, local food for local people done in as an affordable way as possible. You know, the idea is that you as a subscriber and a member, you you know, you share in the bounty of the summer and you are kind of are aware of the the leaner months. And so it it kind of really connects everybody with this idea of seasonality and seasonal produce and um you know and local food um that is as affordable as it you know as it as it can be. So that's kind of what we're doing. We're working on um, to sort of no dig principles. So that's kind of a la Charles Darwin, um, which means, you know, wood chip paths and getting our soil microbiology right and, you know, making all of these kind of really fun witchy amendments of, you know, eggshells, baked eggshells in vinegar and burying boxes of rices underneath old beech trees so what we're trying to do is is you know create the right soil biology um and get the sort of what's known as the soil wide web working how are you learning this but the boxes of rice under the beech trees and and the the eggshells and vinegar how have you liberty nimo found the data because you weren't always a farmer no, no, no. So I'm very new to all of this. And, um, you know, three and three and a half years ago, I was living in, in London where I had been for um, on and off, you know, between London and Italy for about 10 years. And, I, you know, I suppose it's the sort of epiphany moment of, you know, loving watering vegetables and growing things and, you know, the beauty of the countryside where, where I, I did, you know, I grew up in the countryside and I, and I just felt it's a world of never ending learning. And that is so exciting. And it's also a world of incredible beauty and fun. And there's such joy to be had in, in seeing things grow. And so I, I kind of made a shift. For, you know, I, I still work part time on my London based job, which, you know, is, is very much just, you know, it, it's something which, you know, working in, in agriculture is not a, a massively um profitable <laughs> field to be in and and therefore actually you know it just makes sort of sound economic sense you know I'm not due to you know inherit a farm or hmm. um, it's kind of a way for me to 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 balance both worlds which is really lovely. So who has the farm? Did you buy a little plot of land or are you renting the land or how has your two and a half acres emerged in a way that you can do it while still doing a job based in London? Yeah, absolutely. So I rent a little cottage from Clive and Lydia Handy, who are, and the farm here is has been in Clive's family for about two hundred years, and it's a small family farm. It's about um, three hundred and fifty acres, a mixed farm, so um, made up of you know some rare breed sheep and some rare breed cows, and and Clive also has some arable as well, um, arable fields as well, and the farm's been kind of farming in a regenerative way for about the last 10 years um, and focusing, they're, they're, they're no-till, the farm's no-till um, and, you know, ev as I've mentioned, you know, everything's about the sort of soil microbiology and, and getting that right. You know, we're in the Cotswolds, so we're very high and we're on Cotswold Brash, which for anybody who doesn't know is 
you know, pitiful soil. Um, and so we, you know, the whole thing is about how to build this layer of topsoil, you know, how to therefore build in, you know, resilience, build in, you know, maintain moisture and 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 look after all of your fungal, fungal networks. So you've got, they've got rare breed sheep and cattle. Can you tell us which breeds and why? That would be question one. And then how did you come to be part of the farm? Were they looking for somebody to come and do a horticulture bit or were you looking for a place to do horticulture and then found them? So um, question one. So there's Devon Closewell sheep, which are, um, you know, enchanting. And if you were a child and, and drew a sheep with sort of big, you know, curly ears and smiling faces, that that's a Devon Closewell. And they're dual purpose. So they, they're they very good. You know, the, the farm certified pasture for life. So, you know, they're only fed pasture and, and no grains or anything like that. And Lydia, who's um, Clive's wife and runs the farm with him, she spins the wool and also, you know, grows plants in the garden and, and dyes the wool. And so she sells, you know, d- directly f- now from the farm um, through our little shop at the vegetables and also through through local markets. And also online. And also online, yes. I So I'm, I, I had been working on um, an organic farm in Worcestershire at Kite's Nest, which is a really wonderful, um, amazing place. And I met Lydia on a farm farm walk and we just got on incredibly well. And the vegetables seems to have sort of emerged in that wonderful way that these kind of funny ideas do. So it wasn't that somebody, you know, one person was looking for something and a problem was being solved. It's just happened in quite a nice kind of, sort of flow, flowing way. Yes, an organic way. Yeah, and this, this is the nature of emergence from complex systems, I think. Absolutely. Something emerges that you weren't expecting. Yeah. So you're in an area of outstanding natural beauty, AONB, which in, in England, I think in the whole of the UK, is a kind of designated area that gets particular interest from the government. But I'm interested in the idea of affordability and yet having a system that in the long run will be self-sustaining. Because one of the things that George Monbiot blesses many bits of writing um, seems to be arguing is that we can't possibly have pasture-fed livestock. He seems to have a really big, bad thing about pasture-fed livestock, which is bizarre because it's the single most useful way of using. Feels like the ones around here. But leaving that aside, because he says the product of the food that comes off, it will be too expensive and that this then becomes a rich man's hobby and and input and that ordinary people won't be able to afford it. And you're creating a community-supported agriculture scheme that, that if I've heard rightly, is designed to be for local people and designed to be affordable. And it's not that everybody around you has an Audi SUV and, and a spare house in London and lots of spare cash, I'm guessing. So is there a route towards this being financially sustaining, do you think? Or is it something that's always going to require a bit of government input? And is, therefore, government input always going to be required to keep food at a level where people can currently afford it? Oh, Amanda, I'm so glad you asked this question. It's it's such a fabulous question. I have a lot of thoughts about this. You know, one, I think what we're obviously trying to do is set up a self-sustaining business. You know, I think, you know, agriculture has to be, you know, <laughs> you know, any business, it has to be financially viable. 
that doesn't mean to say we're all, you know, going to want to buy second homes in London for selling vegetables. But, you know, it, it does have to make financial sense. Um, I think there is government support and we received government support, which was fantastic, you know, and, and we received, um, you know, 50% of the project was grant funded. Right. Um, it was complicated because we had to get planning permission for two polytunnels because obviously it's relatively, that sort of slightly conflicts with the area of outstanding natural beauties kind of aims and objectives. Yeah, yeah. However, you know, 50% is, yes, it's a huge amount of money, but it's also, I mean, somebody else has got to, you know, Clive and Lydia have had to foot the other 50%, which is a huge risk and quite a sort of scary position to be in for something that you don't know how it's going to work out. And However, what I really, really think is that the future of, of farming and these kind of small scale businesses can very much, could very much be dependent on, you know, bigger business mm. in the way that, you know, the farm subsidies and the ELM scheme are changing towards, you know, public money for public goods. I think a really sensible way would be for big business to be, whether they're given tax breaks or some sort of a relief for supporting these public goods i.e. clean air, you know, um, good healthy soil, good food. And actually, you know, relatively speaking, to set up our vegetable scheme has been compared to, I don't know, you know, a lot of other businesses. It's re it's, it's relatively not a huge sum of money. It, so if there was, you know, a local business that um, isn't necessarily looking for a huge return on their money, but is wanting to see, you know, the health benefits of people walking to collect their vegetables and healthy soil and clean water and all of those benefits. It's a really interesting thing. And I think that's where these projects can be funded. What we're trying to do is, is have as many diverse income streams as possible, which then builds up, <laughs> I keep talking about resilience in the soil, also resilience within, you know, the system that we're creating. Because, you know, you then have a little bit of income from some one part and a little bit from another part. And, and all of a sudden, that then creates something pretty firm. Brilliant. So I definitely want to look at resilience and how soil resilience builds human resilience. But I'd just like to stay with the financial balancing for a bit. I was listening to the Outrage and Optimism podcast the other day with a woman called, I'm going to say her name wrong, but Jacqueline Novogratz who had a really interesting proposition, which is how do we use the tools of capitalism without letting it own us and, and direct us? And she'd spend a lot of time, a lot of effort raising microfinancing, particularly for regenerative agriculture projects, as far as I could tell, but mainly in the global south. And finding that if she had the right conversations with big business, she could point out that their old models of requiring a certain percentage returns were not going to work and they had to at some point accept what she said was a couple of base points reduction. And, and we discovered later that a base point is 0.1% uh, in, their, in their income. So, you know, wow, you're going to have to give up 0.2% perhaps in order to find a model that works. And I'm thinking the government, all governments around the world, all of the, certainly the Western governments have poured billions of dollars and pounds and everything else into contaminating the land, destroying the microbiome, and particularly now we're realising utterly annihilating the watercourses, 
with with toxic chemicals and nitrogen runoff and all of those things. And for them now to shift focus and put money into actually regenerating and creating clean air, clean soil and food that you could actually eat without dying. You know, you don't have to scrub it for two minutes with hot soapy water to make it safe to eat, which was until very recently the government recommendation for fruit and vegetables picked in this country. Nobody ever does it, but that was the recommendation. Um, seems to me like an obvious thing to do. And I'm wondering whether in your part of the world, you were pushing on an open door. Did the representatives of government in whatever guise you met them understand what you were doing or did you have to educate them first in order to help them to understand? We are incredibly grateful for the support that we've received. However, there were certainly, you know, logistical and um, administrative kind of battles with it. And we actually had the whole of the DEFRA sort of head office for the type of funding that we received out to to see where their their money had gone. And wow. um, it was a really great opportunity to kind of explain what we're what we're doing and why it's really important. You know, and I and I also think it's you know it's really easy to knock DEFRA and you know government bodies and 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 you know of course there is <laughs> there is a huge lack of joined up thinking, you know, which is why we're in this sort of position. And um, you know the 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 head banging that went on for us to get this grant, you know, would have would have been a massive stumbling block for other people and would not have you know I think a lot of other people would probably have not have not bothered I think the problem as well is that at the moment there is not a unified approach from government for what the future looks mm. like and I think the danger of somebody like George Monbiot who has this voice and doesn't understand or hasn't under, properly understood the the you know the pasture fed farming the importance of livestock you know, I think any movement will probably start as being a relatively like high end or high value thing. But, you know, you look at the cost of producing food and we never, we do not pay that true cost. You know, I know that by growing my broad beans for, you know, six months and picking them and, you know, mm. talking to them in telling them all of the nice things I can think of and, you know, and then potting them, blanching them, freezing them, you know, how do you, how do you put a value on that? And so, yes, you know, this food is worth more money, you know, pasture fed food is worth more money, more money or, you know, it, it, or, or organic vegetables or the way that we're growing our vegetables. Yes, but that will change as soon as a kind of unified approach to this way of farming can change, you know, happens because I think at the moment when there's not a clear unified approach, you you can't take that top down, that there is no top down view on it. You know, it has to be, which is why we're trying to do this kind of more sort of bottom up thing of, you know, well, let's just figure out what works for us and what we love and, you know, and, and hope that that works rather than saying, okay, what, are, what can the government do for us? <laughs> Because it's too complicated. Mm, yes, of course. Yes. Yes, yes. And and also we're in a period yet again of total political flux and, and what they did yesterday might well not be what they do tomorrow. Yeah. And uh, things are changing. So thank you. Let's, let's take a segue off onto another track. And I'm really interested in your process of you had a field that had been under arable production. It hadn't been ploughed. I'm guessing... He was drilling, direct drilling. 
to create fodder for the livestock. But anyway, you had a you have a bit of a field. How did you first of all choose that bit of field? And then you're two and a half acres. Can you talk us through the process of turning that into somewhere where you can get the the broad beans that you can pick and talk to and you tell them they're wonderful and your aubergines and all of that sort of stuff? How you went about planning it and what your criteria were. What were you what you were aiming for and how close you got to what you originally thought? Yeah. So um so the 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 field was in arable, arable rotation and it was um there was a cover crop that was down there so um it was grazed by by um the cows and the sheep in the in the winter. It's basically an awkward part of a field. So it kind of made sense for the arable rotation for it to be cut off. And it's also along a footpath, which means we get lots of lovely dog walkers to, you know, have a chat with about what we're doing. And it's also right near the grain store, which is where we've added the little kind of pop-up shop. So there's, you know, access and parking and um, there's water. And so, you know, it's high and it's exposed, which means in the winter you know we it's pretty pretty windy but um that's our only trade off really otherwise it's 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 absolutely perfect and so to to kind of help counteract the wind we've um planted lots of diverse hedgerows and we've planted lots of willow and hazel that'll also form part of our coppicing and will also form part of replenishing our wood chip paths um and then because it's a funny shape patch, um, we're actually putting a forest garden in at the far end this autumn, and so that's a that's a sort of you know multi-layered planting, you know, a, a planting of of trees and and fruit fruit trees and nut trees, and so the idea. Lots of people actually talk about it as being their retirement plan <laughs> because it's hopefully in fifteen years' time quite low maintenance, but you sort of get quite a nice um crop off it and within that we'll, we'll also we're also building a little pond so you know what we're trying to do is make something that's as diverse you know as species rich and um and and within that that's also part of our kind of pest management control for our you know our our beloved vegetables so we've also put in a um beetle bank which is kind of a part of a, a dual purpose attempt to to help with all of our insects control. So we've got aromatic plants on on one side, and then we've got this beetle bank, which essentially is a sort of glorified pile of rubble with some tussocky grasses planted into it, and that kind of creates the ideal nesting habitat for 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 beetles. And they will travel up to sort of they travel up to fifty meters. So they have got, uh, th- but we thought that maybe was too much. So they've just got twenty five meters to go to the vegetable patch. So hopefully they're all filled, which is which I think the proof is kind of is 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 there. And um, I mean the 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 diversity within the veg patch is absolutely is is extraordinary. Um, and I you know I I must get better at my beetle and insect IDing. <laughs> or you could get some of the dog walkers to come and do it for you. Because I think this just feels like a really rich way of encouraging people to get involved. Because um, I I'm always interested in how do we spread the narrative. And and there's a limit to what you can do. You can write little articles for your local parish post or you can maybe do something with the local radio station. But actually if you have people walking past 
on a regular basis and dog walkers are, are nothing if not consistent in their dog walking habits, then presumably they can see the change. They've watched it as a field and then they've seen you planting all of the stuff that you plant and watched it grow. Are you getting custom from the people walking past? Yeah, I mean, it's it's that has been absolutely amazing. So we, I think the unusual thing about where we are is that we're not necessarily in the typical kind of what you'd imagine as being the Cotswolds, you know, we, we actually, it's, it's a sort of relatively, you know, it's not the, 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 the Chipping Norton set at all. Um, It it is made up of like really lovely local communities. And the, the most amazing thing has been having these conversations with everyone as they walk past and say, what are you doing? And how are you doing it? And why are you doing it? And, you know, I would say the the majority of our subscribers are made up of the people who do this kind of the, the loop and come past. And that for me has been one of the most amazing and also the most rewarding things about the way that we've been, you know, that we've been kind of spreading the word is that we really are reaching people who are disconnected from from you know from agriculture and um you know because they're not farmers they have normal jobs and otherwise they they value you know it's so many people come into the shop and they say wow this smells like my grandfather's you know shed because you know that that smell of onions and um the sort of beauty and brightness of everything is not something that we see in the shops anymore and 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 everyone sort of sighs as they come in and it's you know it's it's really wonderful and then for people to come and collect their vegetables on their walk and we've got a you know one of the families who come they all cycle over and pick up their vegetables and talk about what they're going to cook and argue over who's carrying the carrots and it's wonderful and you know that and 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 i think otherwise you know they're the people who actually need to be reached with all of this i wouldn't say you know i i i wouldn't say that they're all made up of you know a higher echelon of society they're normal people which is wonderful and and that's the aim yes yes gosh there are so many threads here i'm wondering if we can go down the thread of the microbiome in the soil creating food that has a different nutrient array spectrum than let's say the stuff that you get in the supermarket that's basically been grown on dead soil with a lot of chemical inputs and i remember going to a talk by a gentleman from the Bionutrient Food Association in the States, and they were trying to develop a handheld mass spectrometer, basically, which which blew my mind because when I was a student, mass spectrometers took up the size of a house and, and you, you put your little sample in and you waited about three weeks and something came out and they were wanting to get an app on your phone and you just you know, point it at your carrot that you just picked up and then point one at your carrot you just got from the supermarket and, and look at the readouts and go, look, one one is worth eating and one is basically covered in poison or has no nutrient value. And I don't think they're there yet, sadly. Um, he said he, it was going to be out by 2022 and I don't think we're there. So are you exploring that? I, I know I, there's no particular reason why I should throw my scientific desires onto you, but are you finding ways to look at how to evaluate these things? I mean, that is kind of the million dollar question, isn't it? And actually, I was talking to a lady last year who was working for I don't know, cancer research or somebody, and they were trying to actually, you know, scientifically, it's really difficult to prove this nutrient density um, thing. And, you know, we, we, we do have a refractometer here at the farm, um, which we 
have not yet used, but that might be because a couple of other things have been going on. But the intention is there to use it. Um, you know, because I think this thing of, well, it smells beautiful and it looks beautiful and it tastes delicious. And is that enough? Does that equal you know, <laughs> nutrient density, like to, to the, to the common sense mind, it does, but to the scientist, I, it, you know, it's, it's not enough. And of course, you know, if you were to look at the vegetables, you can see, you, you can see the nutrient density of them, but I think it's, you know, it, it it's really, it's going to be, it's going to be really important to try and prove this as well. Um, and I, and I also think what's going to be, what I'm really interested to see is, you know, these are, are everyone who's coming back and our customers who come every week because they subscribe and how their approach changes from their gut microbiome changing from the vegetables that they're eating. Right. And I think, you know, there's got to be a kind of measure in there of this kind of emotional impact that is happening then. I don't mean to be conceited about that by saying our vegetables are, you know, curing everyone's unhappiness, but there is something in that, you know, we are what we eat and, yeah. you know, the soil is you know, if we think about our gut being our, you know, the second brain, we are, the soil is exactly the, the mirror image of that. And so I think it's a really, really important thing to kind of think about. Gosh, there's so much there. Because I know in Aberystwyth, actually, there is there is now a machine where I can send fecal samples from the horses. And, and about three weeks later, I will get a readout of every single, the DNA of every bacterium in that sample. Oh, wow. So you can measure the gut microbiome in the horses. And if you can do it in horses, you can do it in people. I'm sure they were doing it in people first. And yes, and I, a lot of the horse people that I talk to, you notice, they notice a significant change in their horse's behavior when they get their gut microbiome back to something that it should be, again, by basically finding pasture-fed horses and stop feeding them cereals. And I'm guessing that somebody somewhere must be doing the work wouldn't it be exciting to be able to take someone who's basically eaten out of a supermarket and then introduce them to your produce from, from your living soil with, with inputs only from the surrounding area and measure the change and then somehow also be able to measure the behavioural change? Yeah. Because there is, there is a lot of work now that people's behaviour is really linked to their gut microbiome. And I know just from my own, I, I gave up carbohydrates or at least grains kind of going pasture-fed effectively. And the first six weeks, I was so crabby. Ah, I would have killed anyone for, you know, just give me a bit of bread, anything. Bread, I need bread now. Give it me now. But then once that had passed, I was sleeping better. I didn't know how foggy my head was until it wasn't. And, you know, everything everything became clearer and sharper and easier and I slept better and, and all of those things. And they're not hard to quantify these things. It's just thinking to do it yeah well if Clive and Lydia listen to this then I think we've got a new project for the three turnips yeah I think it's a it's brilliant and and you know we need to do we we, we need to do some benchmarking of um what was everybody eating before the three turnips <laughs> yeah yeah and then also find behavioral ways of you know how do you feel because there are much better assessments. When I was an anaesthetist, we had the kind of 10 stage from unhappy face to smiley face. And, you know, you circle where you're at and it tells us your pain level and then we can assess it. But I think there are much, much better ways now of assessing how people are are feeling. Yeah. Um, and this idea that your gut is your second brain, or it's not an idea, this reality that your gut is your second brain would be so exciting. Are you measuring 
changes in your soil biome or even just seeing differences in worm counts, things like that? Well, we've got a micro microscope on the farm and um, spend lots of long winter's evenings looking looking at soil and things shooting across the plates, which is wow, which is just a you know a complete incredible magical field. And we have had a, a, a soil scientist who's helped us a little bit um, here on the farm, and I think. With the amendments that we add on um, to the soil, there are lots of fungi that pop up, you know, across our beds and within the wood chip path too, which is amazing. And they've, ch- you know, they've changed over the last couple of months. And then, you know, the the soil is ch- is starting to change um, from, you know, from the different amendments that we've put on. So what have you put on? What sort of amendments have you put on? L- let's take a step back, actually. Did you do the full Charles starting of just mowing it flat and then putting cardboard down and then piling compost on top of it. Was that how you started? We mowed it. We didn't add cardboard. Um, we actually added, we because we thought it was going to blow away. And um, <laughs> what we did was we've, there's three layers of compost. One is Clive cleared out all of the silt from the, the springs on the farm. And so that's kind of, wow. that's amazing. And we looked at that under a microscope and that was really interesting. So alive. And then the second layer is farm was farm compost, which um, was, you know, has kind of been made in a pretty, typical way but is full of was full of weed seeds and so we thought um just for our first year we then actually put a top layer of the council compost which is inert um on on top of the beds and then from that have kind of inoculated the soil by adding all of these various amendments like the eggshells baked in vinegar and the rice um and you know so the, they all form different have different stages so you know you cook the rice and bury it and then once the fungi all form on top of it you then mix it with with bran and with sugar and um and then you bring it up to temperature and also mix it with some with some compost and then you've sort of got this kind of incre- you know this completely incredible bomb of of biology and so you just sprinkle it's like sort of sprinkling salt and pepper um onto the bed so it is it is amazing where did you find that where are you finding your your ideas of input is this something that Clive and Lydia have been doing for years or are you just hunting this out on the internet or talking to people combination of of all of those things so um Clive and, and Lydia have been no till for the last 8 years Clive hasn't used any artificial anything on the farm this year which is amazing and then you know a combination of asking lots of people you know evenings researching and you know reading lots of books um and social media is also you know a really great source of 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 kind of Im- you know, informing you know yourself with what other people are doing at that time of year too. Mm. Um, but it's it's also I think there's kind of an element of naivety in that somebody came to the farm the other day and said that we're like those instant gardeners from those sort of instant makeover where you kind of go in and then two days later you've got like a fully formed <laughs> garden because it's just been so quick that you know that all of this has happened in six months. It's extraordinary and. You know, the thing is, is that we have, because, you know, I'm not a market gardener, I'm not trained and I'm learning on the job and I'm doing this as I, as I go. I mean, I now very proudly say I am a market gardener, but it it means that, you know, we can do these funny, wacky experiments. Like, um, I'm actually, you know, experimenting with trying to get some late peas. So I've just planted out some peas in the polytunnel, hoping for an October 
late September, October crop. And, you know, somebody came and said, ah, oh, that's fantastic, you know. And and it's because there's this sort of element of naivety, which means you can be really brave and experimental. Yeah. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Exactly. Exactly. But I hope in three years' time, when I know a little more, I'll still be experimental. Yeah, but you will, because if an experiment works, you know, behaviourally, you only need a, a few to work for you to carry on experimenting. If they all fail, don't worry, we'll we'll give you more experiments. There will be things that you can do. Uh, yeah. Tell me a little bit, just for my own curiosity. So eggshells and vinegar, I'm guessing you've got basically a calcium carbonate in acetic acid yeah exactly so uh, so you'd give off co2 probably and end up with a calcium solution is that what you're after yes exactly that's ex- yeah exactly it so um you know a, a lot of the things that we obviously want to be adding are things like carbon and calcium and sulfates and so that's what we're kind of trying to aim to get to and also you know the microbiology of something like um, you know, an ancient woodland. Um, you know, the the it's the, there's such a diverse mix in there that if you can help proliferate that, that's also kind of what what we're trying to do is sort of speed up that process. Right, and I'm guessing because the livestock you've got the Devon red cows and the Devon close-wheel sheep, but they're pasture-fed, so they're extensive. So you don't have what some farms have, which is a shed full of straw that's been urinated on and defecated on and trampled around and basically turned into amazing compost. So you don't have that. Do you end up going across the farm with a bucket collecting sheep poo, which I find myself doing on occasion? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, what, what, I mean, again, this is where the wood chip's so amazing and such a brilliant resource because um, a lot of our brown is made up of wood chip. Oh, okay. um, and, you know, the green is our, our green... So, so obviously, when you're making compost, you, you know, it's it's such a scientific process, and or can be, you know, and and you want to make sure you've got the right parts of green being, you know, green parts and and brown, whether it's sort of, you know, um, straw or or something like wood chip, and so we're using more wood chip in in the compost that we're making, and and what we want to do is also make wood chip compost for our seed for our seed trays because. Um, there's lots of experiments around at the moment to, to showing that you know seeds tend to seem to start off a bit slower in wood chip compost, um, but actually then do much better when they're a little bit further on. And so that's you know we don't want to be buying in bags of you know seed compost, and yeah. just, you know if we can make it here on the farm and have this kind of lovely closed system, then fabulous. And in the end, you can give it to your local community, and they can grow their own. Yeah, I'm. So I'm really interested in the other businesses that you're getting going on the farm because you have this circular economy concept of of let's let the product of one process become the beginning of a different process and get everything moving around. So tell us a little bit about the other enterprises that you're beginning to develop at the farm. Yeah, well, um, so I mean, I think th- I think this is in a way one of well, no, it's all really exciting, but it's one of the exciting bits. <laughs> so we've got a really nice chap who is sustainably making charcoal from the woodlands here on the farm. So we've had, you know, as as so many people around here, there's been terrible ash dieback, mm. which is heartbreaking. And um, as part of the 
you know, the the clear felling, we're turning that into charcoal, but also into biochar, which is another amendment, both for the farm and for the vegetables, um, which, you know, essentially then you're just adding pure carbon to the soil. So... Tell us a little bit, because uh, my memory of charcoal burning from a kid in Scotland is that it required a half a dozen men who kind of went out to the woods all alone and they built something and, and stood around it for a very long time and came back and there was charcoal and it all seemed a bit alchemical. Uh, have you got, is this is this person building his own charcoal burner? What's How's he doing that? Yeah, so he's he's got a kiln, um, which is... Um, it's kind of a, a, a dome shape within a kind of conical uh, roof. And the idea is that the smoke all collects in the top. So you want to kind of get, you know, you want to end up just with pure carbon. And so, you you, you know, I think it's a, I mean, it's obviously incredibly complex, but the, the idea is that all the, the, the smokes gather in the, and the fumes and the um, gather in the top. And you start with three chimneys, and they produce all this white smoke and everyone thinks that, you know, a new pope's going to be elected or something. And then you end up with... <laughs> with Please just, not. <laughs> the current one's doing okay. Let's keep them for a while. And then, you know, over a period of about 24 hours, the chimneys are shut down one by one. When you're packing the wood in, you want to pack it in really, really tightly. And then, you know, at the end, every burn is obviously going to be slightly different depending on, you know, temperature and, and amount of oxygen. And But it's it's a really beautiful process. And, the, you know, the smell of the charcoal is amazing and you can light it with a match and, um, you know, you have to be, you sort of have to carry it around as though it's, um, you know, something really Explosive. precious because otherwise it, you know, will disintegrate if you shake it too much. You know, it's so different from what you would buy in the petrol station. What's the difference between that and biochar? What makes charcoal biochar? Biochar is, is um, a byproduct of making charcoal. Um, and so it's sort of basically the waste bits that are probably not big enough to, you know, be sold as charcoal. And so that you mix in water and um, you know, dissolve it in water and then you spray it on the farm as biochar. Okay. Brilliant. And you're getting then carbon back into the soil and then you can build your soil and then you're sequestering carbon from the atmosphere and everything is is wonderful. And is this part of a, a business that is sustainable when the ash stops dying back, when the ash dieback has done its job and all the ash have gone? Is this person still going to have enough wood input to keep this going, do you think? Well, I mean, I hope so. I mean, he's um, self-employed. So one of the many amazing things about Clive and Lydia is that they want to encourage young people, you know, who are enterprising onto the farm and they are very happy to share their land, which is an extraordinary, you know, an extraordinary approach. Mm. And so, you know, in return for giving the land and the wood, um, you know, that they then sort of, you know, benefit from the biochar and from, you know, us being able to sell the 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 um, charcoal in the shop but I think for for the chap who's doing charcoal burning he's looking at doing hedgerow you know management in the winter and then charcoal burning in the summer oh, hedge, hedge laying laying hedges exactly yeah exactly and so so th- you know through through that he's hoping to get that that also is a relatively sort of diverse you know income stream for him and I think you know for for many years to come there will be um you know hedges to lay on the farm and there will be you know trees trees to be looked after and to be felled and you know there's been an awful lot of planting um over the last kind of eight years here so yeah. I think I think 
there is scope for that. But I think there's also scope for, say, um, him to go and work on another farm and bring the wood then to here to be you know to be burnt on the in the in the charcoal burner and to do the process here so i think one of these other things that we're kind of interested about in is how do you make this kind of a way of farmers being able to collaborate together and you know if if we've got the charcoal burner can somebody else from another farm come and use it you know why not yeah that then provides more other income streams and more diversity than than fabulous um, so, so that's kind of one of the things that that has been, you know, really exciting over the last over the last couple of months. Brilliant. And presumably, when he's hedge laying or or even hedge trimming, that produces a lot of brush that you can then chop up, and that becomes your your chopped wood chip for your paths and to go into your compost. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so that so that's perfect. And then we want to also get funding for a commercial kitchen so that we can, you know, turn these wonky vegetables into soups or kimchi or, you know, make jams and um, you know, maybe someone wants to do, you know, frozen vegetable whatever. Or soup or or cooked meals or anything once you've got a kitchen. Because Joel Salatin, who's who's a big redemptive guy in the States, I think I gather from him that he says if you've only got a certain amount of money, the first thing you do is create the kitchen on on a commercial level. And and with presumably all of the insurance and all of the hygiene certificates and all of that kind of stuff, so that you can process everything that you're making. Yeah. And do canning and things like that. Um, you know, actually, I, this this week I stored, um, again, another experiment. I'm storing some carrots in sand just to see if if it's something that we that can work, you know. And, and the sand's incredibly, you know, it's as dry, hopefully, as it, I'm hoping it's dry enough. That would be really interesting because we could, rather than storing stuff, we can just turn it into, into a soup or whatever, right. you know, needs to be. But... I think um, it it provides further scope for us. And again, you know, this is what we were talking about earlier in terms of, you know, where does this funding come from? And, yeah. you know, a, a commercial kitchen, a small commercial kitchen on the small farm, it's not masses and masses of money, but it it's a it's a huge investment for Clive and Lydia. But if it was to be done by, you know, a local business who are wanting different benefits, um, then, then I think it is suddenly something that's really appealing. Yeah. Or the local authority who wants proper school meals. <laughs> yeah. Even if you were only offering a percentage of their input to their school meals, the difference in the kids of having food with a living microbiome would, I imagine, be huge. But yeah, it, that requires that requires a lot of joined up thinking. So one of the things that we're looking at potentially here, if we are able to get... Um, a silver pasture where we've got rows of trees and pasture in between is is chickens because extensive chickens I would not ever be interested in chickens that are shut in a house or we have three chickens we started with nine the fox has been a few times um, and they they basically roam everywhere and then put themselves to bed at night but that we could do the Richard Perkins idea of the chicken tractor which is to move it progressively over where the livestock have been after the dung beetles have gone. I saw my first great big, big, huge, juicy dung beetles today. It was amazing because we've had lots of little ones, but I saw the first big ones. Um, so I'm wondering, are you thinking of 
moving to chickens or a micro dairy or is sheep and and beef is the thing? No, chickens would be fantastic. Chickens are the next um, next on the list. Um, I would absolutely love to have some some chickens, and I know that Clive and Lydia would would too. Um, and we're just trying to work out our sort of our timings at the moment. But you know, eggs are fantastic, and 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 there are some chickens here, some hens here on the farm, and you know the eggs sell out. You know, they don't even make it to the shop door, and they've gone. And also, you know, they're such a, a fantastic part of this. You know, of of the pasture fed system. Yes, yes. The, the process of a chicken scratching on the dung and just spreading it everywhere. Yeah, and the boron. Oh, really? So Nicole Masters, who, um, as you probably know, is the sort of queen of soil, and she talks about the boron from from um, the chicken manure, and it's sort of, you know, it's gold. So hang on a minute, let's talk through this. So where do they get it from? Because it can't be that chickens make boron. That's not a thing. Well, <laughs> I, I can't go any further. <laughs> okay, I'll look it up. I'll maybe get Nicole Masters to come and talk to us about how that works, because that would be really really exciting. Okay. In amongst all that you're doing, you told us about the Devon Close Wool rare breed sheep. And it seems that wool and fibre in all its forms are going to become increasingly important in all that we do as we move towards a more regenerative future. So can you tell us a little bit more about what you do with the wool and, and how you use it and what it's for? All of those things. Well, um, so so Lydia's just got about fifty breeding ewes, so it's a small a small flock. And at the moment, um, there's a there's a couple of things going on. So Lydia grows plants here in the garden and dyes them, um, and then that's just sold as 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 wool to be spun. So she's got a sort of cult following of um, of knitters, <laughs> which is fantastic. And then some of the other wool gets sent off to a weaver in Wales, who, as you will definitely definitely know, Amanda, there's very few weavers and the processing of wool is kind of the wealth of the Cotswolds was built on the wool industry. And, you know, you only need to go down the road to Northleach to 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 see the church and, and um, you know, to, to see all of these kind of these incredible buildings that have been built on the wool industry. And, and here we are now unable to process wool. You know, it's sort of insane and and it's such an amazing resource and it's such an amazing fiber and and so Lydia's also been in in talks with a fashion designer about you know um sustainable fiber for for clothes but also what we want to do here at the farm again is look at look at sort of getting funding for something that we can then kind of collaborate with other farmers on so we want to have a processing plant where you can bring your wool and it doesn't have to be, you know, beautiful and the best quality. It can be, you know, it can be pretty basic wool. Um, and and we want to felt that and turn it into, um, you know, mulches for trees, for you know, as a horticultural mulch, because it's a fantastic mulch. And what it means is that it's not then, you know, the finest doodah, whatever. It's for everybody and it's for all farmers and, um, you know, locally who want to bring their wool here and it's making a use of it. And so I think, you know, that that's something that we're we're really interested in in doing. And, um, and you know, again, it, it requires more funding. I think it would be a very useful, a useful thing to do without having to go down the route of kind of you know, just making it a luxury product, which of course it is and can be, but it doesn't have to just solely be that. Yeah. 
Because because like you, Ludlow near where I live was was built on on the wool industry, and there was a while when everybody wore wool. And now, as far as I can tell, our local farmers have to pay the wool board to take it away. And they either burn it, or there was a time when they sent it to China where it was processed, and then the Chinese sold it back to us at a vast profit (laughs) so that we could then knit it into things that people might want to wear. So it would be quite good, I think, in not just in terms of our local industry, but in terms of the basic carbon footprint of our clothes, if we could begin to start using the wool locally. And I'm I'm very aware that the Land Workers Alliance, three Fs, are food, fuel and fibre, the three things that we bring to the land. And so I think it's curlew weavers that are that are weaving for Lydia. Are they producing things for people to wear or is it more rugs and blankets? They do sort of rugs and blankets for Lydia, but I know that um, you know he he also works with other farmers, and I, th- I believe that you know it all falls under the sort of the the kind of umbrella of um, the fibre shed movement, which, as you'll know, is an amazing group of people who are trying to promote this thing of fibre and you know the multiple uses of it and how it is a kind of neglected resource and you know i think the work that they do is is really amazing and hopefully you know they're they're continuing to kind of raise the awareness about all of this but i think you know yes curly weavers you know they i know that he has a, a waiting list of about 3 years which that in itself is kind of a heartbreaking thing um that you that that that, that there are people with the wool as well, who who do want it to be spun? They're just desperate for someone to spin it and then weave it into something that they can actually use. Yeah. Okay. Well, we're getting there. You know, it's uh, the more we put the word out, maybe somebody would like to become a weaver. I think it it sounds like one of those old crafts, like like hedge laying, and thatching, and growing, that we all need to get back to more. So we've got wood chip, we've got wool. And and meat from the the various the the beef cattle and the sheep all pasture fed all I'm guessing organic and what else I know there are various other enterprises on the farm tell us about what else you're planning and what else you're doing well one of the other really interesting and exciting things that that Clive and Lydia are growing is the heritage wheat, which are the old wheat varieties. And they've been developed by a guy called John Letts. And they're kind of population wheats, which means that, you know, within the wheat mixture, you might have over 100 different types of or up to 100 different types of varieties, which means that you've got this very resilient crop. You know, you've got bits that grow like taller and shorter and deeper. And so what that means is that, you know, the risk is kind of spread. You know, obviously, one of the things for farmers about growing wheat or any crop or anything for that matter sits with them. You know, the 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 the, the supermarket or whoever it is that's that's buying the produce of them. You know, then are actually not taking the risk in terms of if that mm. crop fails, lamb doesn't make it to yeah. to 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 slaughter. And so, what did wheat varieties seems to do is add another layer of resilience. Um, And what it also means is we, or Clive and Lydia, are called the Cotswold Cotswold Grain Network. It's a group of farmers who are all growing different heritage wheat 
and they're sort of sharing information, sharing ideas. And um, one of the farmers has has bought a mill, um, which actually has been grant funded, which means that Clive can take his wheat to the mill, have it milled. We then team up with a baker in Cheltenham, um, so eight miles down the road. They bake the bread and sell it. And so you've got this really wonderful um, low mileage produce, you know, and, and, and that tastes delicious. Yeah. And presumably it's healthier also, because it seems to me these monoculture wheats, particularly if you're going to spray them with glyphosate just before you harvest, but even without the spraying, eating monocultures cannot be good for our gut biome. We, we've already explored gut biome a little bit. So presumably having lots, a hundred different wheat species in your bread makes it a whole different prospect. Yeah, absolutely. And and the lovely thing about eating heritage wheat is that you kind of you have one slice and and you're full. Whereas you know with Warburtons you want to eat the whole loaf and you're still not full and then you feel ill. <laughs> oh, now you see. I want to go back onto grains again. Yeah. <laughs> is it any harder to harvest? Because I know one of the reasons people go for monocultures is everything is the same. You set your combine harvester at a certain height and you know that your your wheat is that particular height and you just slice it all off and then your straw is all the same length. If it's all different heights, which I gather is good for differing weather conditions and things like that, is it harder logistically to get it in? I don't know enough, but I believe that that would be the case. Right. Um, and it would probably be, be trickier. I mean, I know that in terms of yield, you obviously work on a much lower yield, but that val- the value of that yield is higher. Right. You know, and in the same way of like, the you know, the pasture-fed meat sort of, um, I wouldn't say argument, but like, you know, view is that, you know, if we all eat less food whether it's meat or wheat or vegetables that have higher nutrient density as we were talking about and higher value you don't need as much and so um you know so so i don't think the yield necessarily correlate you know it's not a true kind of correlation of um success which you know which again is the 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 pasture fed thing too and also if we wasted less it's. I think connecting people up with their food and the, their, the land and the lives that have been given mean we're much less likely to just put something in the fridge, wait till it's gone off and put it straight back into the recycling, which you know, there is enough food in the world to feed us all. It's just that we waste stupendous amounts of it. And so it seems to me that part of the local food movement is helping people to reconnect with the value of food. Somebody's work went into growing this aubergine or a life went into the burger that's on your plate and then you're less likely to throw it away because you just can't be bothered, I hope. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Tell us a little bit about the three turnips because we've been talking about you and Clive and Lydia, but you've actually got a little group called Three Turnips. Tell us what that is and how that arose and where you got the name from. I think it's great. Well, the Three Turnips was Clive's um, stroke of genius because, you know, this is all a a great risk and a great adventure and we don't know what we're doing. And so we felt that the app's name for us was the Three Turnips. Are we suggesting that turnips are not very bright? Oh, is this this turnipist somehow? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's great when some people accidentally think that we're called the three beetroots. Oh, fantastic. Maybe has less of a room to it. (laughs) And beetroot, as we know, are really amazing health foods and quite easy to grow, as I am discovering. So that's the name of the the CSA and the Market Garden. And, you know, at the moment for this year, we've got about 35 members 
which is fantastic. And they all come from within a three to four mile radius of the farm. And they've all come through word of mouth and through local, um, you know, the parish magazine and and the dog walkers and WhatsApp groups. So we've, you know, it's not been huge kind of marketing burden. Right. Um, it's just been, you know, local gen, which is exactly what we want. Yes. And I'm interested, do you think that by connecting local people to the land and the food, are you seeing at all? It's probably too early, but my hope, my dream, my projection is that if we are able to bring quite conservative with a small c people more into connection with the land then their resistance to the concepts of climate breakdown and the climate emergency and the ecological emergency becomes less ideological and we can begin to have more conversations about regeneration that are not hitting up against tribal limits are you finding that at all yeah i think that is really really interesting and i think i suppose the tri- those tribal limits and those big you know ideological ideas about you know um climate change change sort of come from a different place whereas what what seems to be happening is you know if people are coming onto the farm and they're seeing you know lots of bumblebees or lots of moths they don't necessarily initially connect that with being a thing about biodiversity you know and they don't necessarily make those connections but and and they don't necessarily prioritize those things either as being you know that that's how we want things to become instead they will it seems that what they sort of say is wow this tastes good and this smells really nice and this looks really beautiful and do you know what i saw a bird the other day and i haven't seen it before and and then all of a sudden the penny drops and it's then the whole picture kind of slots in and and then they say, oh, right, well, this is the environment we want to be creating. And so that then becomes the ideology. It, it doesn't kind of happen from, you know, saying, oh, well, we've lost all of this or this is missing or it, it's kind of a much gentler process, yes. I think. Yes, yes, because knowing that 70% of UK birds are now on the amber endangered list is is a head thing. And, and all of the neuropsychology, as far as I understand it, is that if you have worked something out for yourself, it stays in and it and it's real. Yeah. Uh, you know, and sadly, the whole Q Anon thing in the States was was very clever because they led people. They they gave them lots of little building blocks and let them make the links themselves. And because they made the links themselves, they believed them. But we can do it here, exactly as you're saying. If people are seeing either more of things that they're realizing they're not seeing in their own environment or new things that they haven't seen before and make those links themselves, then it stays in and then it feels real, which is which is fantastic and glorious. And I'm thinking, so we've got sheep and wool and fibre, which is really important, and heritage grains and all the biochar and all of the wood. And the one thing that we haven't talked about is the thing that drew me to you in the first place, which is Nimo skincare. Tell us a little bit about that. Yes, of course. Well, I also make um, some lovely face creams and I started off making them when I was working on this wonderful farm in Broadway at, at Kite's Nest, um, where I you know, learned to drive tractors and trailers and made hay and did all of those lovely things and really learned about this kind of philosophy of, you know, 
how to how to kind of live and and and, and philosophy is too strong a, a word but it just i really identified with the way that they have you know chosen to live and i really admired that the principles by which they live and and we were messing around with you know talking about tallow and and which is beef fat and how it's a really useful medicinal product product and you know was obviously used for for candles and can used in soap and also in deodorant and you know farmers don't get any value for this there you know there is no value attached to it it's a waste product and i just think that's a great shame and i think you know if you've got meat that you can eat you've got you know wool that you can wear <laughs> why can't we also use you know tallow for for um as part of our you know, skincare regime. And so I grow all of the herbs myself and, and dry them and infuse them in oils and and um, use pasture-fed tallow from the farm or from Kite's Nest or from another local farmer too. It's not going to kind of compete with some of these bigger names, but it is a lovely little sort of simple yeah. um, product, which I which I think, you know, I, I think is really important and I think should be thought of as as being, you know, another thing such as wool and, you know, yeah. such as biochar. And I need to have a little more time to um, apply myself to it. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking about time, but I'm guessing also as we move towards a more regenerative lifestyle, as people make regenerative choices, you you don't have microplastic beads in your tallow skincare. You're probably not packaging it in huge amounts of plastic. It's part of a whole systems change that we need to have. And if people can make this the change now, then you know, if the great big, huge pharmaceutical companies go bust because nobody's using their stuff anymore, that wouldn't be a hardship for almost everybody. And it would be better. I'm very impressed. Um, so uh, we'll put a link to Nimo Skincare in the show notes as well. But can people order this online? I guess you don't actually want to spend your life packaging stuff up and sending it out to people. How do how do they find it? Yes, they can. They can order online or or, or just get in touch with me online. Okay, um, and you'll tell them well. where the outlets are. Yay. Yes, exactly. And what about future? Are you because we are thinking we we're hoping to have agroforestry rows here and thinking about chicken tractors, the whole Richard Perkins, you move chickens a little bit away after the dung beetles have been and gone because you don't want the chickens eating your dung beetles. Yeah. Um, although I've noticed we only have three, they run around everywhere and they don't seem to eat the dung beetles. But are you looking at that kind of a thing progressing down the line? Yes, absolutely. I mean, um, pasture-fed poultry is, is, is next on the list and it's something I would absolutely adore to do as well. I think, you know, certainly the Richard Perkins style, um, have, you know, and 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 following the the cattle and the sheep around as well, um, you know, and I think they you know they add so much benefit to the to the soil health, um, and also you've then obviously got the you know further diversification of income streams through you know eggs and and chicken too. Yeah, and and people, I it's another taste thing. It, um, Dan Kitter of the Biodynamic Food Association says you don't need all of the spectrometers, although he is trying to make the one, but that people's taste buds are the best assessment and that if things taste good they are likely to have a higher nutrient density when you buy i don't know you sometimes get raspberries i occasionally crack and buy raspberries from the supermarket and they actually taste of blotting paper and sometimes they even taste of blotting paper with really icky stuff in it they're horrible but the ones that you bake here are amazing and it's the same with eggs i think whenever we have spare eggs people the the color is different 
And the taste is just, it's like it's a different thing from Supermarket X. Do you find that also? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we we have somebody here in the village who can't, who doesn't eat other eggs, but eats the eggs um, here from the farm. I mean, there's 13 hens here at the moment. So there's a, there's a you know, a small number of eggs, but um, it's, a, it's a completely different thing. Yeah, different experience. Yay. Fantastic. Going for a micro dairy at any point? A micro dairy would be wonderful, but I suspect we might need somebody else to come in and do that. So if they, I mean, that that's the other thing is that, you know, Clive and Nadia are very open to, you know, having people with enterprising ideas. And, um, you know, and if there is somebody who's interested in, in running a micro dairy, you know, we'd be delighted to hear or, you know, or poultry too. Um, yeah, just getting the other people doing it, I would. I love to do a micro dairy, but I think it's it's one of those things you do that, or you do everything else because it is the, you know, even if you have the calf on cow, you don't wean them, you leave them on, and so you're only milking once a day. It's still a huge amount of extra work that I haven't quite managed to figure out how many hours there are in the day. Yeah. <laughs> so we're coming to the end of the time now. Is there anything that you would like to say to people listening other than find your local CSA, subscribe to it, be part of a regenerative local food network if you possibly can? Anything else from your experience? Well, I think, I mean, I just think that, that um, you know, it's a really, really exciting time for farming. And I think, the you know the language around farming is changing and and I think it's really important to, to as you say to try and find your local CSA and engage with the farmers who are doing things in the right way and sort of support and continue to to encourage them because even though you know we as you know regenerative farmers there tends to be a, a lot of sort of echo chambery conversations where you talk with like-minded people but to 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 get the message out further tends tends to be sort of one of one of the challenges um so i think you know to to this level of engagement is really important and i also think for anybody who's interested in moving into a world you know into the world of agriculture and are sort of fearful of you know low salaries or long hours you know to 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 really think about it as a kind of wonderful way of of living and as a way of doing in conjunction with other work too Yes, yes, because as you said earlier on, this is one of the few, the word industry isn't right, but ways of creating value within predatory capitalism where you don't know the value of what it is you're making today. You know, if you make widgets, you know what you're going to sell them for, and therefore you know what the inputs are, and you can work out what your profit margins are, and that's how predatory capitalism works. And with farming this year, costs have gone up just exponentially. Diesel and fertilizer and all the normal industrial agriculture inputs are just skyrocketing. And nobody's going to have any money to pay for food because that always seems to be right at the bottom of everybody's desperate list. And we don't know how much we're going to get for the stuff that we're having to pay more to make this year. It's it's always been the one thing in capitalism that that and women's care that has been utterly undervalued. But I think what I see talking to people like you and, and similar is that the more people come and work on the land, the more they find it meaningful and they realise that the empty, what David Graeber called bullshit jobs that they might be doing, might make the money, but they don't feel like they have value. Whereas working with the land and growing things has a huge sense of this is worthwhile, that, that has to be worth something in the long run. 
Anyway, we're going to let you go. I gather you're going off to pick your potatoes. So we will let you go and harvest the amazing harvest of your land so that you can put it into the veg boxes and send it out to your local community. Liberty, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. Amanda, thank you so much. It's been a complete pleasure. Thank you. And that is it for another week. Enormous thanks to Liberty as she goes off to lift the potatoes and do all of the other jobs that happen on a farm at eight o'clock on a Friday evening. It's not for the faint-hearted. It's not for people who want a nine-to-five steady job with every day predictable and every day the same. But I'm not sure anybody actually wants that. And from my own experience, beginning to grow things and learning what it is to feed yourself and your family from the land is an extraordinary experience. And I fully understand that people in the middle of a city may not be able to access two and a half acres. But increasingly, there are urban farms and ways of growing and people whose whole aim is to bring growing into the town. And as we move forward to whatever this flourishing future is, it has to involve more locally grown food. So I know I've said this before, but I am saying it again. If there is a community supported agriculture scheme anywhere in your area, please do what you can to support it. I know we're in the middle of a cost of living crisis, but nothing is going to get better if we don't take active steps to change the system. And how we eat is one of those core, key things that each of us can actively change. So that's your mission this week, people. Look at your food, work out where it comes from, and if it can be changed, then change it. And that is it for this week. We will be back as ever next week with another conversation. In the meantime, enormous thanks to Cara C for the sound production and the music that introduces us and sends us away. Thanks to Faith Tillery for the website and the tech, and to Anne Thomas for the transcripts. And, as ever, enormous thanks to you for listening, for supporting us, and for spreading the word. And if you know of anybody else who wants to be part of the generative dance of the world, then please do send them this link. And that's it for now. See you next week. Thank you, and goodbye.